So uh, who's, who's on your MySpace top eight? <laughs> I mean, I, I, know, I know that MySpace hasn't been relevant since the, since the middle of 2004. Um, and so this, as an opening illustration, has its limitations. But if you can remember MySpace, if you were alive then, and if you uh, happened to be on the internet at that time, uh, more than likely you had a MySpace. And that meant that you got to choose out of all of your MySpace friends, your top eight friends. And your top eight friends would be displayed on your profile page for everyone to see. And if you're like me, uh, you spent an ungodly amount of time trying to decide who those top eight were. Um, just curious, how many of you uh, kept Tom as one of your top eight? Remember Tom? No one remembers Tom? Remember Tom, the guy with the white t-shirt and his, his profile picture looked like he had been caught by surprise? Uh, well, anyways, I, I liked Tom. I, I wanted Tom to be my legitimate friend, so I would write him often. Um, he never responded. But anyways, that's not the point. The point is, there is a scientific reason why choosing your top eight was so difficult. There was a scientist, uh, an anthropologist to be more specific, by the name of Robin Dunbar, who while studying the social practices of primates in the 1990s, uh, began to wonder if what he was seeing in the jungle could be connected or related to our experiences as human beings when it came to our relationships. So he came up with what is now known as the Dunbar number, which is a number that suggests the cognitive limit we have when it comes to maintaining social relationships. In other words, how much space we have in our brains to be friends. The Dunbar number is 150. Dunbar's research led him to say that we can maintain 150 social relationships. Now he describes this group, this 150, as casual friends. Meaning if you were to throw a, a big party or, or say have a wedding, get married, um, there are probably about 150 people that would warrant an invitation. Now, of course, this isn't an exact number. It's a range. So if you're more introverted, it might be more like 100. And then if you're highly extroverted, it might be more like 250. But 150 seems to be the right number for most people. And that's what's most well known about his research. But he actually goes on and begins to break it down even further. He suggests that out of 150 people, we can maintain fairly close relationships with 50 people. And we can have a core group of about 12 to 15. He describes this group as the, as the people, the number of people that we would be devastated if they died. And then lastly, we can have three to five best friends. So it makes sense why the MySpace top eight was such a thorn in my side. It was easy to, to pick the first five, but those last three were excruciatingly tough to decide on. But as I was reading through Dunbar's research, what I found fascinating was, the, was this idea that, that I never thought about before. I've never thought about relationships based on brain capacity. It's never crossed my mind that we only have so much space in our brain in order to maintain relationships. And once it's used up, it's used up. So the next uh, few months, all the way until Advent, Christmas is coming, y'all, um, all the way till Advent, we are going to be looking at what it means to be in community. And this really started last week with John Parker's Vision Sunday Sermon, where, where he told us that a call to God's work in the world 
is really a call to God's people, that relationships matter. And part of our vision is that we, we seek to be connected in Christ-centered relationships and Christ-centered community. So, so over the next few months, we're really going to dig into what that means. So today, and for the next three weeks, I thought we'd start that dis discussion by looking at what it means to be a friend. What, what does the Bible teach about friendship, and what role does it play in building a Christ-centered community? What's the Bible teach? Is the kind of friendship found and developed in the context of Christ-centered community any different than the kinds of friendships that are developed in other contexts? So today, we're going to look at what the Bible has to say about the importance of friendship and what it actually is as opposed to what we might think it is. And then next week, we'll get down and get into the nuts and bolts on, on how to build friendship. And then the last week, we'll look at how to repair broken friendships. So today, why friendship and what is it? Normally, we have a single text uh, that, that we preach from, uh, but throughout this series, we're really going to kind of go throughout the entire scriptures because I want us to get a really full picture of what the Bible teaches on this topic. But we will be spending the majority of our time in the Proverbs. The book of Proverbs is a collection of wise sayings, most of which are attributed to King Solomon. He was the third king in Israel and also the last king before the kingdom divided into the north and south. He was the son of David, uh, as in David and Goliath, David and Bathsheba, David who wrote most of the Psalms. And it was interesting, when Solomon was becoming king, he actually asked God to make him wise. And I want to read to you that account. It's in 2 Chronicles chapter 1. It says this, the night, That night God appeared to Solomon and said to him, Ask for whatever you want me to give you. Solomon answered God, You have shown great kindness to David my father, and you have made me king in his place. Now, Lord God, let your promise to my father David be confirmed. For you have made me king over a people who are as numerous as the dust of the earth. Give me wisdom and knowledge that I may lead this people, for who is able to govern this great people of yours? God said to Solomon, Since this is your heart's desire... And you have not asked for wealth, possessions, or honor, nor for the death of your enemies. And since you have not asked for a long life, but for wisdom and knowledge to govern the people over whom I have made you king, therefore wisdom and knowledge will be given you. And I will also give you wealth, possessions, and honor, such as no king who was before you ever had, and none after you ever will have." So if you were curious about what the prayer equivalent is to wishing for more wishes, it's that, right? It's to ask God, pray for wisdom, right? Um, and then tithe. Um, and so uh, we, have, we have Solomon asking for wisdom. And in this book of wisdom, he paints us a picture of how wise it is to have friends. Now we have limited amount of time and we have limited amount of brain space for relationships which includes our family relationships, our work relationships, our neighbors. So why is, why is friendship uniquely important? Well, as we look at what the Bible teaches, I think we'll see that friendship brings something into your life that no other kind of relationship can, that romance can't, that family can't, that your neighbor can't, nothing else can bring. And it's because friendship is always a choice. In friendship, you are a completely free agent. 
Proverbs 17, 17. A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. What this is teaching us is that the people you are related to by blood, your family, they're going to be for you, you're going to be there for you at times of adversity, most of the time, if you have a somewhat decent family. Because built into the family relationship, there's a sense of loyalty, there's a sense of obligation, and most of the time care. They're going to be there for you, but they may not like you. In fact, they might not want to hang out with you. They might not want to go and grab a drink with you. But a friend has chosen you. This verse also is saying that a friend can be better than a sibling. Now imagine that you lived back in this day. And, and, you, and you heard this saying, that would have been a pretty radical saying because this was a time and a culture in which family was everything. Everything was built around the family. Everything you did was for the, for the purpose of serving and benefiting the family and the family name, bringing honor to the family. So when this was, was first said, I'm sure that some eyebrows were raised and maybe even some people got angry. But why would a friend be better than a sibling in a culture that is built around the importance of family? Well, again, it has everything to do with choice. Proverbs 18.24, A man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. The word sticks is, is the word, the Hebrew word, that oftentimes in the Old Testament is translated as cleave. Back in Genesis, when, when the institution of marriage is first um, instituted, um, uh, it says, you know, at, at some point, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. See, this is a word that means commitment, not out of obligation, but out of passionate choice. Friendship is a choice. And because it's a choice because you don't have to have friends, because it's not a necessity, it brings something that no other relationship can bring. A lot of what I'm going to share with you tonight was, uh, is things, insights that I've gotten from C.S. Lewis's book, The Four Loves, and I'm going to quote it a whole lot, so you're probably going to think that I think it should be scripture. I don't. I don't think that C.S. Lewis is, is scripture, uh, but I do think if God wanted to add to his word, he would ask C.S. Lewis to write it. So uh, I'm going to quote him a lot, but, but this is what he says in, in his book, The Four Loves. He says, friendship is the least instinctive, organic, biological, and necessary of all the relationships. It has least commerce with our nerves. There's nothing throaty about it, nothing that quickens the pulse or turns you red and pale. What he's saying here is the, the main reason that friendship is often neglected is because it's the, easiest, it's the easiest to get through life without. There's no biological reason for friendship, and there's really no sociological reason either. Think about it for a second. If it weren't for romantic love we wouldn't exist. If it weren't for family love, we wouldn't be reared. If it weren't for neighbors and, and civic relationships, we couldn't survive against crime and oppression and that sort of thing. If it weren't for work relationships, we would have no living, no way to feed ourselves. Now, some of those relationships can be friendships, but friendship on its own, apart from any other relational role, serves no biological or sociological purpose. Therefore, friendship, which takes deliberate amounts of intentional time over time, will always be the first thing to go. It will always be what we neglect when we get busy. Look at our schedules. 
Look at, look at how busy our lives are. One of the things John said last week when, when, he, when he asked people, you know, what is, what's the major barrier for them getting into a, a connect group or being a part of a community? One of the top reasons was busyness. People were just too busy. Time is squeezing everything out. And the things that you and I end up making time for are the things that impose themselves on us. When I get busy, my friendships are the first to go. I have to maintain and give time to my wife and kids or else my family will fall apart. And I should say that this is also a relationship that oftentimes is easily neglected. Um, but, but I know i got to put time into it or else it'll fall apart. If I, if I neglect my work relationships, um, I'll either lose my job or I'll be lousy at it. If I, if I stop pursuing relationships with my neighbors and others from whom I might need a favor one day, uh, there could be consequences. If I stop pursuing relationships with people who are far from God, I'm not going to do that because that's what, that's what God's called me to. That's how God's going to use me. But I can't tell you how often I talk to my best friend and the conversation starts like this. Oh man, it's so good to talk to you. I, I feel like it's been three or four weeks since we've talked. Friendship is a choice. It's not a necessity, and so it often gets neglected. But without it, we will always be less than what we might be because it's part of our design. If we go back to the beginning of the Bible, if we go back to Genesis 1 and 2, we see God creating things and then saying it's good. Create something, it's good. Create something, it's good. And then suddenly in Genesis 2.18, God says, and it's not good. It kind of jumps out at you because there's been this rhythm that's developed throughout the first two chapters. And what does he say is not good? He says it's not good that man should be alone. Now think about this for a second. The first human was in paradise. There was no sickness. There was no death. Nothing wrong. He had perfect relationship with God. He, he walked with God in the cool of the day. There was, there was no sin that had marred that relationship. And yet in paradise, it wasn't enough to keep man from being lonely. Jonathan Edwards, uh, who for my fellow Hamilton fans, was Aaron Burr's uh, grandfather, also the man who wrote Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, uh, he preached a sermon where he said, the only possible reason the first human being was lonely in the Garden of Eden, that paradise wasn't enough for him, was that God had made him to need others beside God. In fact, Edwards goes on to say that God must be the least envious, the least possessive person in the whole universe because he designed, he designed us deliberately to need something other than him. Now, I really wrestled with that. I really, you know, because I feel like when, when everything falls apart and when friendships fall apart, the go-to thing that we say to each other as Christians is it doesn't, all you need is God. All you need is God. But yet it seems, based on creation, that that's not true. And when we actually go back and look at our creation, we go back to Genesis 1.26, when, when God created us, it says, let us make man in our own image. Take note of the pronouns, us, in our. See, from all eternity... There's always been one God and three persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. You know what that means? It means God is a friendship. 
that before the beginning, there was friendship. That is what distinguishes the Christian God from all other gods. He was himself a friendship. If God existed as an impersonal single God and brought about creation, it would have been a display of his power. But if he is indeed a personal Trinitarian God, the God the Bible tells us he is, then creation was an overflow of love. That love and relationship is at the very center of existence, not power. So when God made Adam, he was lonely. Why? Because he was made in God's image. Because he was like God. Adam wasn't lonely because he was imperfect. He was lonely because he was. He was lonely because he was like God, and God is a friendship. If we're made in God's image, then friendship is part of our design. It's not necessary. It's always a choice. But without it, we can't be all that we were designed to be. The more deeply we move into friendship, the more we become who we were always meant to be. Friendship makes us the most us by making us more like the one in whose image we have been created. So it's important. So friendship's a choice. It's part of our design. So now what makes a friend? Well, let's go back to Proverbs 18.24. It says, A man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Notice that the contrast here isn't between two equal groups of people. Companions, acquaintances, associates, you could have many of those. But a friend sticks closer than a brother. See, this proverb is getting across the idea that they're true friends, they're just not many. You could only have a few true friends. And so what makes the difference between a companion and a true friend? Well, turning again to C.S. Lewis, he says this, Friendship arises when two or more companions discover that they have in common some insight or interest or even taste which the others do not share and which till that moment each believed to be his own unique treasure or burden. The typical expression of opening friendship would be something like, what? You too? I thought I was the only one. And this happens all the time. I mean, it happens for me. Like, I, again, I think I maybe have told you all this before, but I get, I get so irritated when, uh, when I order a Dr. Pepper and someone brings me a Mr. Pibb. And, and I, because they're not the same. And, uh, and I need to be told, I don't, don't just bring me Mr. Pibb. It's not the same thing. And, um, and, uh, and I get so angry about it. And I can't tell you how excited I get when I meet other people who are like that, who get irritated at that. I look at them and I say, what? You too? I thought I was the only one. See, what Lewis is saying here about friendship is that friendship is not something that you and I can create. It's not something that we can just make happen. It has to be something that we discover. It's something that we're walking along with people and then all of a sudden we look at them and we say, wait, you care about that too? I thought I was the only one. Ralph Waldo Emerson said almost the same thing in an essay he wrote about friendship. He said, friendship doesn't ask the question, do you love me? It asks the question, do you see the same truth as me? Or do you care about the same truth? 
See, what makes a companion into a true friend is a common purpose, seeing the same truth. Now, this is really what makes friendship and the marriage relationship slightly different. Now, you should be friends with your spouse. Your, your spouse should be in your top eight, in your top three, right? Your spouse, like that should be a goal. Um, but uh, the fact that your spouse, um, the, because you have a spouse uh, who, who is your friend, but your spouse is also your lover. Ooh, <laughs> that sounded really weird coming out of my mouth. Um, <laughs> ah, it's because of Will Ferrell and Rachel Dratch and that Saturday Night Live skit. Um, it's a good word, though. It's the right word. Um, and C.S. Lewis uses it. He says, uh, lovers are always talking to one another about their love. I've got to practice some of these things before I say them. Um, uh, lovers are always talking to each other about their love. But friends never talk about their friendship. Lovers are normally face-to-face, absorbed in each other. But friends are side-by-side, absorbed in some common purpose. In other words, friendship could be described as two or more people standing shoulder to shoulder and moving down the same path. In marriage, we, are, we should be concerned with the other. We should be concerned with how the other is feeling. We should be concerned um, with, with what our love is like, how, how our love is. We should be captured by each other. But in friendship, we really shouldn't be concerned about the friendship. In fact, to make a friend is to want something besides a friend. It's to stand next to each other and say, hey, do you see, do you see the same truth that I see? That's what makes a friend. And this is why sometimes we think we're friends with people that, in fact, we aren't friends with. And, and this uh, is one of the common issues for people who show up at Regroup. They come to Regroup because they, they're dealing with friend problems, codependency and boundaries, you see, there are all kinds of issues that arise when we just want to be friends, when we just want a friend, when we, when we want a friend because of who we think that person is. Maybe they're cool or they're well-known. Maybe they have a lot of influence. And somehow we think that friendship, a friendship with that person, will solve something in us. But you see, when the goal of friendship is itself friendship, there's nowhere to go. There's nothing substantial for the friendship to be about. There's no journey to join in, a, in on. So then the friendship becomes a drama, not action. True friendship is not drama, it's action. But see, I think we often try to seek and create friendship instead of discovering it. When Kelly and I lived in L.A., we were, um, we were pretty convinced that if we ever ran into them, uh, we would be really good friends with Reese Witherspoon and Ryan Felipe. Um, they were married at the time, um, and we would actually spend a lot of time kind of imagining our friendship and what it would be like. And, uh, you know, like we would, we would take care of Ava one night so they could go out and have a movie and a date night, you know, since I'm sure that was hard for them to arrange. And, uh, and we, we imagined like taking little baby Oliver to their house to, to teach him how to swim because we didn't have a pool because we were poor. And, 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 we, and we thought, you know, we're going to be the kind of friends that, that it'd be okay to just, you know, hang out in our comfy clothes and play Parcheesi on a Saturday night. Like, I mean, we had it all, we had it all worked out. And uh, we, actually, uh, we actually ran into Reese Witherspoon three different times. And uh, on the third time, um, I, I told Kai, I said, Kelly, I... I need to invite them to dinner. And, uh, 
And, uh, you know, and, and I, I mean, it didn't feel weird because I felt like we knew them. I mean, we read everything Us Weekly said about them. And, um, and it's going to be fun. And, and so I, I, I started to make my way t- towards her. And, uh, and, and Kelly ran and actually hid behind uh, a rack of clothes. And, and then I got real self-conscious. So I, I walked up to her and I just did kind of like, like this, and then I didn't say anything, and, and so I missed the opportunity, um, which is a shame because we were going to make tacos. Um, but if, if I had asked her, and she had said yes, that wouldn't, that wouldn't have made us friends, right? Because it, it was all about what that friendship could be, not about joining each other in a common purpose. Listen, if, if you are constantly having to talk about your friendships... If you're constantly having to reevaluate them, if you're worried that you're not really friends or that your friendship feels one-sided, if you feel the need to be impressive or if the friendship is always letting you down or you always feel like I'm not really being let in, they're not your friends. That's okay. That's okay. Call it what it is. Again, the proverb makes it clear, and so does Dunbar's number, You only have space, you only have capacity for a certain number of true friends. So if it's not a true friendship, move on. You've got some discovering to do elsewhere. When I was in my mid-20s, I became friends with six other guys. um, And we were all very different. We had very different hobbies, very different interests. But we were all newly married, and and we were all new dads, or or soon-to-be new dads. And and we really... uh, we really just didn't want to suck at being dads and husbands. And, uh, and so we got together every week to just try to help each other not do that. And sorry, Mom, she hates that word. And I, and I don't like it either. But that, is, that's the re- that was our common purpose, to not suck as dads and husbands. And we discovered friendship through that. We became friends through a common purpose. Because when we got together, we didn't talk about our friendship. We didn't evaluate our friendship. When we got together, we talked about our marriages. We talked about our struggles and our doubts and who God is. And we fought for each other in our pursuit of holiness. So friendship is a choice. It's part of our design. And it's discovered. It's not created. It's discovered when you find out that you have a a same common purpose. And lastly, true friendship comes from not making friends but being made a friend. And this is really the key. This is what makes friends in the context of a Christ-centered community different than any other type of friend. Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, the night before his crucifixion, he gathered uh, 12 men around him. And he said this to them. He said, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends for everything that I learned from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. And so that whatever you ask in my name, the father will give you. This is my command. Love each other. Jesus looked at these men and he said, you're my friends. I'm going to let you in. I'm going to let you in on everything. And when Jesus spoke these words to his disciples, suddenly the whole history of the world can be understood in terms of friendship. 
in this moment, Jesus became the friend who loves at all times. He became the friend who was born for adversity. He's the friend who sticks closer to a brother so that we won't come to ruin, no matter what the cost. After dinner, uh, while, his, while his friends were all falling asleep, even though he begged them to stay awake with him, we're told that Jesus really wrestled with the cost of friendship. He knew that he would either have to descend to hell or lose friendship. And he said, I'll go to hell. Jesus on the cross lost his friendship with God the Father so that we could, like we teach our kids in base camp, be his friends forever. God got as angry as he will ever get at our sin 2,000 years ago, and we didn't even have to be there because our friend was there in our place. How to make a friend starts with being made a friend. Jesus has made you a friend by being the ultimate friend. Jesus thought friendship was so important that he was willing to die for it. So maybe it shouldn't be the first relationship that we neglect. Maybe it's a choice worth making even if it costs us something else. One last thing. Because of Jesus... The gospel has given us the ultimate common purpose. Do you see the same truth as me? If Jesus has made you his friend, there is no one who Jesus has made a friend with whom you can't answer yes to that question. There is no one that you can't walk shoulder to shoulder with. It doesn't matter your race. It doesn't matter your upbringing or your life circumstances. It doesn't matter your political views or your own personal convictions. Think of the potential of that, to find someone who in every other way but Jesus is so unlike you. You can have a true biblical friendship with them because you have a same common purpose. That's the kind of friendship Jesus died for because that's the kind of friendship that the world will look at and decide something about God and they'll be right. That God makes unlikely friends. So we're going to look next week at how to build those, those unlikely friendships. But I want to leave you with this uh, thought, last thought from C.S. Lewis, actually. For it will seem to us that we, we four or five, have chosen one another. But for a Christian, there are, strictly speaking, no chances. A secret master of the ceremonies has been at work. Christ, who said to the disciples, Ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you, can truly say to every group of Christian friends, you have not chosen one another, but I have chosen you for one another. Summit. Jesus, our ultimate friend, has chosen us for one another. So what kind of friendships are we building with each other? Are we taking steps into places like regroup where, where we can be truthful and, and say, like, this is, this is a struggle for me. And have someone look at us and say, what? You too. Are we taking steps in our connect groups to just tell our story truthfully? Because we know when we tell our story truthfully, it is good news. 
You see, we need to be in Christ-centered community because it's in the, in the, in the Christ-centered community that the kind of friendship develops that the world will look at and say, man, I want that. Or even better, I want him. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you that, uh, that you did make us uh, with a need uh, for each other. That in your design, you purposely made us uh, so that we aren't just complete in a relationship with you apart from other people. And so uh, I thank you that that's true. And, and I pray that as we wrestle with what that looks like to move towards that, uh, that we would trust you. That we would trust that, that even though it's hard and painful, even though it's risky at times, that what you will actually do through those relationships will make us more into who you always intended us to be. So Father, make it clear. Make it clear what each of our next right step is. And may we make that step knowing that we have been made a friend by Jesus. That we've been made a friend by a one who did not care about the cost, but went to the depths of hell so that we could be his friend forever. And we pray all of this in our friend's name, Jesus, amen.